Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today I'm delighted to be talking with Professor Peter Grossman about a topic that's been important in American history, but never more important than today, U.S. energy policy. Professor Grossman is Professor of Economics Emeritus at Butler University. He is a, a widely published author, I think at least seven books, Peter. That's right. Yeah, and I, I just found out this morning, he has, of course, a BA and MFA from Columbia and a published playwright of at least four plays. Yeah, well, performed, uh, yes, at least four plays have been performed. So we have a person here who, the rare economist who knows how to write <laughs> and has written a wonderful book that I want to talk about today. Um, he received his PhD from Washington University in St. Louis and he studied at, with his main advisor, Douglas North, who of course, as many of our listeners know, eventually won the Nobel Prize. Today we're going to be talking about his book and the topic, U.S. Energy Policy and the Pursuit of Failure. Welcome Peter Grossman to The American Idea. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, it's a provocative title, U.S. Energy Policy and the Pursuit of Failure. Let me just read from the preface and get your thoughts. This is you. It may fairly be noted that as a historian of policy, I have the benefit of hindsight. And the arguments I make about the consequences of policies that seem obvious today may not have seemed so at the time they were enacted. But there have been lessons of history with respect to energy that go back decades. Policy failures are not a recent phenomenon. Nevertheless, for the past 40 years, now 50 years, it appears that policymakers have learned nothing from the past. The policy has always failed, has seemed irrelevant to each new Congress to each new presidential administration and to each new agency head. It is as if officials are saying that they know their ideas will fail, but they pursue them anyway because they cannot think of anything else to do. They will pursue a course of action that sounds pleasing to voters but has no chance of success. They will willfully pursue failure. Finally, that has been the story of U.S. energy policy, the pursuit of failure, a story that has seemed impervious to facts and remains mightily resistant to change. It seems strange that people would, policymakers on such an important issue as energy, would pursue failure. Help us understand that. I wish I could understand their thinking uh, totally, but in fact, they do the same thing over and over again. They propose the same things over and over again. And th they seem to have the belief that uh, the real problem is they haven't done an, in, uh, spent enough, uh, done enough, pursued the, uh, some kind of uh, utopian goal, and they haven't pursued it with enough money and enough vigor. And of course, these kinds of things come up because of some kind of problem in energy markets. And 
those things tend to get righted by the markets and then they lose interest or they've passed some bills that have really retrograde uh, elements to them mm. uh, or pointless elements to them and uh, they just let them lapse or they uh, defund them or uh, they continue on uh, because they have political support but they really don't do all that much in terms of American energy. Give us an example. So our listeners are thinking, this is interesting. It sounds a little abstract at this point. You said this goes back decades and decades. Right. Can you give us one example, perhaps even from decades ago, of this pursuit of failure? Uh, well, one of the things that uh, definitely caused problems for the, in energy markets was uh, uh, price controls. While we often think about price controls with respect to oil and, and in the 1970s, uh, the gas lines and so on. Uh, but actually, uh, natural gas uh, has been controlled since 19, the 1954 Supreme Court ruling mm. in the Phillips case and was being controlled and manipulated by various bills and various congresses going back to the 1930s. During the uh, next ensuing years, when they decided to uh, amend the rules with respect to uh, natural gas, during the Carter administration, they passed a bill, the uh, Natural Gas Act, that uh, made natural gas production and sale even more complicated and more difficult than it had been for the previous 30 years. Well, so, fa so failure though, failure assumes they've got a goal right. and they just enact policies, wrong policies that don't get them to the goal. Take right. natural gas as the example that you were just discussing. What was the goal of po federal policymakers with respect to natural gas? Well, that's a good question. I think uh, they would have said that it was to uh, protect consumers, to allow uh, natural gas to be sold to people who needed it, businesses probably also, at a price that they could afford. And so therefore they passed bills to make natural gas more affordable, mm -hmm. except that what they were doing was making it uh, more scarce because they were attaching uh, price ceilings to uh, uh, to natural gas. I think though that if, if I may move away from natural gas, the question of pursuing failure, uh, it, it does seem to be more noticeable uh, with respect to uh, general goals of, uh, of, of energy policy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the goal of uh, energy independence, for example, which we may or may not have reached, but uh, probably haven't reached as most people think of it, and ne never will probably, but they keep talking about it. I mean, you'd think that uh, we're not in such a bad situation from the standpoint of energy availability in this country right now, but uh, the candidates, as well as the President of the United States, keep talking about energy independence and that we need to move toward energy independence. Now, they've been talking about doing that since Nixon went on television in 1973, and he proposed a bill a set of things that it was going to bring us energy independence, but it actually wasn't. None of that would have worked as making us energy independent as anybody would have thought it. Ford followed with the exact same idea, and he pursued it with two things that uh, one got passed in some form, but 
uh, the other one went nowhere. Carter had a, what he called a full or nearly full complete energy uh, program that was passed in 1980. And Everything in that package, or nearly everything in that package, was repealed, was ignored, was uh, revised. Mm. When subsequent bills were pr uh, proposed, like the Green New Deal, it had a lot of the same characteristics and was promoted in a very similar way. One of the things about energy policy is that it's promoted to be almost a panacea. If we have the right policy, uh, the world will change. Carter believed that uh, the right energy policy would save the American soul as well as uh, the American way of life and the American economy. And that's a pretty so, lofty goal. <laughs> yes, and it's also designed to fail because any kind of time you have those kinds of goals in mind, you're not going to achieve them. But uh, along comes the Obama administration, uh, not to mention the fact that George W. Bush was not so far away from that with his cellulosic ethanol uh, imaginary uh, panacea. With the Green New Deal, you have the same sort of thing. If you listen to the rhetoric around uh, even the, the current Inflation Reduction Act. Oh yes, right, right. Uh, the rhetoric around it was that it was going to solve our energy problems, solve climate change, boost poor communities, reduce racism. Solve America's problems. Solve all, everything becomes a solve all. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of things are doomed to failure. Now. Uh, Bush's thing in 2007, AISA, the Energy Independence and uh, Security Act, he touted uh, cellulosic ethanol. Right now we, we're supposed to be producing something like uh, 20 billion gallons of it a year. And we're producing minute amounts, even though there's a dollar tax write-off for every gallon that's produced. Mm. One of the things that, that keeps happening with energy policy is that these goals are uh, stated that include some kind of a technological breakthrough. The government can't order a technological breakthrough. Of course, right, they, right. Well, people think they can, and that's why they make these, and certainly people in government think mm -hmm. they can. Mm -hmm. Every bill, every major bill in energy has been likened to the Apollo program, has been likened to uh, the uh, uh, Manhattan Project. I see. And none of them are remotely close to either uh, of those kinds. Of, none of the energy policies are really the same as, as either of those. Project Apollo was designed to an engineering feat of putting a couple of people on the moon. Uh, as I believe it was someone said that uh, what is being proposed with the Green New Deal is putting everybody on the moon. And it's not really even an engineering problem. It requires technological breakthroughs that we don't, don't have. And they can't, they can't simply say, we were, are going to do this and we're going to give money to it and a breakthrough will happen. That's really behind a lot of this. And that's, I think, more the idea of the pursuit of failure than anything else in, that's in my book. That's because that's what I'm really, I was very interested in. Is, the, is it going to fail? Uh, definitely, as you say in the book, it's going to fail this U.S. energy policy. Is it because it sets an, uh, what you regard as an unrealistic, impossible, unattainable goal? 
or is it because it sets a goal that could be attained, but it relies on means to get to that end that don't exist and can't be created to exist? Good question, and I think it's both. Okay. Let's, can I take you, energy independence? Right. Is that impossible to attain for the United States, or could we attain it, but we just don't have the means right now to do it? First of all, I would ask you, what do you mean by energy independence? Typically what people would say probably is the United States um, produces all of the energy that it consumes. Right. Okay. That's not possible technologically. Or it, to the extent that it could be achieved would require government rationing or clampdowns on uh, use. Uh, would require various kinds of uh, prohibitions of uh, imports. Those kinds of prohibitions, by the way, could lead to disaster because what happens if we have another uh, Hurricane Katrina that closes down our refineries? If we've cut off the rest of the world, who's going to be providing us with oil? The problem is we cannot produce enough energy in the United States to meet consumption demand. I think that's correct. So we would have to clamp, as you say, somehow government would have to clamp down on demand. Right. We'd have to, one of the things that uh, Carter especially uh, recognized or uh, believed was that we needed to be able to have massive conservation and people had to think, be, be taught to think of conserving at every uh, turn. It was a neo-Malthusian who believed that uh, we were rapidly running out of oil and gas. Right. Hence, say, 55 mile an hour national speed limit. Well, that was under Nixon. Ah. Yeah. But the same sort of thinking? Same sort of thinking. Okay. Now, in fact, that led to Carter doing the one thing that was most important to do and made a big difference to the American economy, and that was uh, to end price controls. But he did it in the belief that uh, it would raise the price of oil and oil products so much that people would be driven to, to, cons uh, to uh, reduce consumption. Uh -huh. Okay. And of course the irony was that what it led to was a fall in prices and an increase in consumption because in fact uh, the price controls had hamstrung the, uh, the uh, production of, of hydrocarbons in the United States because who wants to do it if you're government tells you you can't actually get your money back. So domestic energy production. Um, right now, if, you think, if I think of domestic energy production, I think of U.S. oil, mm -hmm. I think of natural gas, mm -hmm. I think of some nuclear, and some uh, hydroelectric. Right. And I guess increasingly, to some small degree, wind and solar. Well, you're, you left out coal, which still is over 20% of our uh, uh, electricity generation and is important in steel making and uh, uh, cement and so on. What's the current status of U.S. domestic energy production across those areas? Okay, it's in a very good place historically. Some people will say we're energy independent as a result. Uh, but we still import about two to three million barrels of, uh, of crude oil every day. So I don't know exactly what people were thinking of when that, well, the, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a kind of uh, idea of net energy production. Uh, we produce more natural gas than we 
can use, so we liquefy some and sell it. We're actually net sellers. By the way, in 2004, Congress held hearings in which it was uh, very much argued that we would be running out of natural gas very soon, and so we needed to build terminals to uh, receive liquefied natural gas. Turned out that we have more natural gas than we can use, so we look for the terminals now are to go the other way. Can can I ask about that? Be just while while we're on that point, why do people make that kind of those kind of spectacularly wrong predictions about ener U.S. energy production? We're running out of oil. We will run out of natural gas. We're going to have to import it, as you say, 20 years later. We're exporting natural gas. Right. And Why do they make such wrong predictions? Part of it is that they can't see that there's oil and gas that are not visible. In other words, you know that if we're using uh, X million barrels a day, somehow that means that the reservoirs are being drawn down. Mm -hmm. And I've been asked, so what happens when it runs dry? And I said, well, it doesn't just run dry, it, it subsides. People can't really get in their minds also the idea that what is meant by reserves? Reserves are the amount of oil and gas that's technically recoverable with uh, current technology. And it's not simply the amount that, that's, that's there. Ah, okay. And in the, in the 70s, uh, natural gas reserves were relatively low. And so people assumed we would be finished with natural gas, including uh, the deputy head of the energy department who said natural gas in the United States is finished mm. uh, because uh, the reserves were, were low. But part of the reason the reserves were low was because the price was controlled and it was impossible to make a profit. So the result, though, was that some people didn't believe that we were running out and they figured out ways to get uh, oil and gas that was not thought to be recoverable. So these technological revolutions, changes, uh, fracking, I would assume, right. for example, right? Um, those actually, because they allow us to uh, recover natural gas and oil in a way we couldn't before, the technology itself has caused reserves to expand. Right. That's correct. Uh, or uh, one of the things, you, there are also uh, expected, or at least likely, resources that are not currently recoverable but are likely to be or could be if the price goes to uh, back to ten dollars or twelve dollars uh, a thousand cubic feet of uh, uh, natural gas the amount that will be produced will increase dramatically because the profit would be so high mm -hmm. although if we're running out then the profit would be high but wouldn't be a shortage so much as high prices that would lead to conservation uh, or switch uh, one of the things that happened in the 1980s was the switch from or 1970s the switch from uh, oil fired uh, electricity to coal and it was ironic that coal be, was considered to be the, the uh, resource that we needed to use for electric production right. uh, because we had so much of it and uh, we had to conserve our oil and gas for other things. Of course, now everybody wants to close all the coal plants because they produce a lot of CO2, but uh, 
it's not, a, not really practical to stop using coal. It's important in steelmaking, for example. So let me ask you this then. If, if domestic energy production is doing pretty well right now, as you said, right. um, what you, you've studied this a long time, this book, uh, and, and all the research that went into it. If you could tell policymakers, if they said, okay, Professor Grossman, what should we do with federal policy and maybe even state policy to produce, uh, to have a stable, low cost energy environment for the United States? What are the top two or three policy changes? that you think we need to make? Well, that's a good question. And it depends, though, in part on the goal. For example, if you want to reduce the amount of CO2 we're producing. Uh, but anyway, probably this would be true even if we don't have that in mind. And that is to uh, uh, utilize more nuclear power, uh, which would re reduce CO2 uh, and would be available for many, many years. What does it take to do that in the United States, to increase the use of nuclear? In part, it would take uh, a change in attitudes, but I believe those attitudes, pollsters are finding, are already changing. Uh, that uh, for a long time it was believed, and people really took this to heart, that nuclear power was one, it was one step away from a, a nuclear bomb. And two, that it was inherently so dangerous that if you lived near the power plant, you were probably going to die young or immediately. The irony is that uh, the number of people who died from uh, nuclear power and radiation are like 50 in, in Chernobyl, mm -hmm. which was an insane uh, story and an obsolete kind of uh, technology. And one person at Fukushima uh, with, from, energy, from uh, radiation, the rest were from the tsunami. Whereas a few thousand people die every year from mining coal, uh, it also still is uh, somewhat uh, polluting, especially in other countries where they don't have uh, the same kind of uh, pollution controls. Lately, the environmental degradation that's created by uh, wind and, uh, and solar production in the various countries that pro provide the resources that make wind and, and solar possible. But wind and solar can't really solve anything. I mean, that's, that's an example of government producing something that's going to be uh, thought of as a real major technological breakthrough. But in fact, what we've learned is that it's not a breakthrough. It's a very old technology. It's been improved to an extent and may have some niche value in places where it's very difficult to get a natural gas pipe to, for example. Uh, but uh, it was the idea that we're going to completely redo our uh, electric system with solar and wind is crazy. So if it's not going to be, you, you say, if nuclear could add a, a big element to U.S. energy production, what else, is there anything else, other one or two other things that you would say, if we did made these policy changes, we would have a much better, better energy situation? Well, most of it is, uh, is repealing um, a lot of what we, what we do now. All right. What should be repealed? 
uh, ethanol mandates for one, solar and wind mandates for another, repealing most of what was passed with the IRA because really the government, one of the problem, one of the issues is that government has very little that it can sensibly do with respect to energy. Now there are some things that it can do uh, that, although some of it's controversial, for example, the uh, I say in the book that uh, the uh, Energy Information uh, Administration is, was a good thing. I said that a number of people have criticized me for saying that because they said we, uh, it's not reliable and it's politicized as agencies tend to be. And so uh, we were better off when we were getting information from oil and gas companies who would provide information uh, to the public. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I, it is politicized. They all eventually are to some extent. They do provide information often that contradicts what the government is saying, what policymakers are saying. Uh -huh. And uh, I know uh, Robert Bryce, who uh, is uh, possibly the leading uh, journalist in uh, energy these days has used energy information administration data to show that uh, wind and solar are not what some people think they are. He points out that uh, solar gets something like 300 times as much in subsidies as oil and gas. It's not easily visible because what he's doing is he's taking the energy value of uh, in terawatt hours, for example, of uh, the use of oh, oil and gas. And then he is, uh, says, this is how much they're getting in subsidies. And here's how much solar is getting. So sort of dollar per terawatt hour. Right, do dollar per unit of energy. Uh -huh. And it's 300 times uh, greater uh, for solar subsidies than it is for subsidies and other uh, in conventional fuels. See, that, that, I'm very interested that that way of thinking and the way of thinking that's in your book, I, I'll, I'll call it, for lack of a better term, the economic way of thinking, as opposed to the utopian way of thinking, as you describe it in the book, as opposed to a kind of social engineering way of thinking. Tell me, uh, tell our listeners, the, uh, why is it very important to approach U.S. energy policy from the economic way of thinking? Well, as an economist, uh, I would tell you that everything has to be thought that way. <laughs> the government has admitted in that a lot of what they're doing has no cost-benefit uh, calculation. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear that uh, the uh, Green New Deal in its current form of the IRA, uh, the Green New Deal has is, uh, first of all, it's impossible to calculate how large an expense it would be to actually do what's in there, probably be in the tens, possibly hundreds of trillions of dollars. Wow. You know, one of the things about energy is that you don't want to really put all your eggs in one basket. If you have uh, uh, solar and wind doing everything pretty much. You re it's really a, a very bad idea because uh, what if you get a breakthrough with something else or some other form actually works better even for the, from the climate change standpoint, which seems to me to be uh, very possible. Uh, I can't for, 
forecast uh, breakthroughs, but neither can the government. And, uh, but they try to think about, well, this will require these breakthroughs and surely they will be coming. In uh, 1980, one bill that was passed was the uh, Magnetic uh, en Fusion Engineering uh, Act. And in that act, the Congress called for a working fusion, nuclear fusion power plant by the year 2000 or 2001, I can't remember. Uh, okay. And, uh, I think we're still waiting for that. Uh, yeah, we are still waiting for it. We're still a long way from it. But yet, people in Congress, one congressman who was one of the sponsors of it, said it's the most important energy uh, legislation that has been passed in the, by the U.S. or any other country in the world. And it was a pie in the sky, you know, not just pie in the whole bakeries in the sky. <laughs> if, if there's one insight or lesson that you want the readers of your book and the listeners for, uh, of our conversation today, what is it about U.S. energy policy? What's that one lesson? As soon as U.S. energy policy becomes utopic, as it is now, with uh, the government's uh, way of thinking about it, the current, the current administration, uh, it's going to fail. And it shouldn't even be undertaken because it's going to be a waste of money, which it's already being. So what I would want people to know is that uh, uh, energy policy should be modest and should be present-oriented, uh, you know. Uh, the idea that we should be uh, doing pol energy policy for 100 years from now is uh, ridiculous. As I've said in other, uh, on other occasions, that uh, would we really be better off if we were using the energy policies of Warren Harding? And I think the answer is, well, that's ridiculous to even be talking about that, that even have energy. Well, Teapot Dome was, I suppose, an energy policy thing. It's ridiculous, and yet people are saying, well, we have to do this uh, to prevent uh, uh, the next five generations from uh, being vaporized by runaway climate change. Well, that's a sobering thought, but a very helpful, illuminating insight. Peter Grossman, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on The American Idea. Well, my pleasure, and thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.